Blog Talk Radio. The Amethyst Oracle, Divination with a Queer Twist. The Amethyst Oracle. Delve into life, death, and everything betwixt, between, and beyond. Between, and beyond. Between, and beyond. With a queer twist. And welcome to the show. Thank you once again for listening in. My name is Heisey, your host. For our roundtable discussion, I am joined by two new people to the roundtable. My first guest is Linda Wiley, and she is a permaculturist. Welcome to the roundtable, Linda. Thank you. And my second guest for the roundtable is Tino Kalenda. And he is the astrologer extraordinaire, Prometheus. So welcome, Tino Kalenda. Thank you. And the topic I wanted to bring today was something that strikes me as a way that we probably don't even realize we live and interact with the people, world, and planet around us. And it's this idea of the difference between living in a way that is interactive versus a way that is transactional. So just to start off, because those are just some interesting terms to use, I'm going to ask each of you what you think when you hear those words as kind of a a definition or a way of explaining what interactive might mean, what transactional might mean, when it comes to how we interrelate to the world around us. Uh, So, uh, Tino, why don't you kick us off with your thoughts around what you would define for interactive versus transactional? Sure. So, for me, transactional would almost be a very one-sided relationship. It involves only one person or one party benefiting from the from the relate from the the communication. So, it would be similar to you know, trading and bartering systems or maybe how a lot of financial markets work in that it's very rare for uh, the terms to be on, you know, equal. And there's always, there's, everything carries a cost. And it's another, another metaphor might be sort of the model of industrial farming that we have as our dominant food production, where you have monocrops and you have a sort of, very stilted relationship to the landscape because what you're doing is you're very violently converting the landscape into one type of relationship and it's not a very equal one. So on the other hand, a more interactive sort of uh, situation would be one in which both parties tend to benefit from whatever's being, from whatever communication is going on. So it's very much about a dialogue in which the energy goes back and forth between the parties. And given that that Linda is into permaculture, I think that's a perfect metaphor because permaculture is built on the principle that um, 
that food production or at least, you know, the farming methods are integrated with the landscape and they work with the ecology of the area and they specifically are an expression of the ecology and they reify those interactive relationships. So that's the best definition I can give. And, and Linda, what do you think of in terms of the definitions for those terms? I did like what uh, Tino just said there about permaculture because permaculture is definitely interactive. Uh, it couldn't work in a transactional kind of way. And, and from what we've shared already, I see a transactional for me then feels kind of like a dead and void, kind of shallow, superficial way of doing things. There's not really a lot of heart or depth or thought or thinking or being present about it. It just kind of happens and interactive is a way where then energies are shared and exchanged and some other kind of growth and something happens in that way that you definitely see within the permaculture model because when you're interactive and plants and herbs grow together and you understand about the the canopy and the pioneer plants and all the different layers and things that happen in an interactive way, we can regenerate and heal almost any landscape. And so that has to be interactive. So I think that follows through onto all levels of the life, actually. Uh, transactional feels heartless and uh, interactive feels alive. Well, and I think that the way that you just described the different layers, like in permaculture and how they all work together and all that kind of thing, the plants and that and the canopy and all of that, it, it made me immediately think about the way our society is structured. And our society is actually structured in a very stratified way rather than a very interactive way. Absolutely. So do you feel that we could... Uh, describe our culture and society as either interactive or transactional or perhaps do you feel there's a combination of both and if so maybe there's like a percentage you could put on there where you say well we're you know 20% interactive and 80% transactional or whatever the percentage might be for you so I feel that um, the world is more transactional at, at this time and I, I feel that that was kind of the downfall of how things happened. We, we got disconnected from the interactive, integrated reality of life into separate components. And we nothing happens in the, the same way. That's why it's not alive and, and vibrant anymore in many ways because so much of that aliveness in the interactive, integrative, combination of community and plants and animals and everything together in harmony is lost. Um, I'm, I'm more apt to agree with Linda on this one because uh, I would say that it's honestly about an 80-20 split across the board. You know, 80% because if you look at so many of our cultural institutions uh, from banking right up to how right up to how sexuality is expressed, it's all very transactional. Um, you know, we, we no longer have economies that are reflective of a, of a cultural matrix out of which they emerge. They're not reflective of the local ecologies and the local resources of the land base that they are in. So essentially they've been disassociated from the actual terms of production 
The other thing, too, is that uh, the means of production, and perhaps this is a Marxist statement, but the means of production do not belong to the people. They belong to a very small, you know, between 1 and 10% of the human population that make up a financial elite. And so essentially they control all the terms of production and they pretty much control the terms of trade and economics and, and you know, it, 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 it basically trickles down into all, at, all levels of society so that everything is turned into a transaction. Now I would say 20% because there is an interactive feature in that there's a burgeoning groundswell of people who are recognizing how problematic this relationship is and and so they're doing work in, in regards to bringing things into a more interactive framework. I see this a lot in, in cutting-edge science where there's an understanding that the reductionist approach can only, you know, has epistemological limits and can only tell us so much. And ultimately, what we see is the more we look into something deeply in the scientific sense, instead of, you know, isolated parts, what we see is just endless layers of relationship. Whether we're talking about the formation of a galaxy or the formation of a, of a cell, what we see is just constant relationship and interactive feedbacks. So I would say that, that the physical and chemical world is very much interactive and that our, our, currently our dominant social world is very much transactional, but that there's a groundswell that's trying to change that. You know... I know that it goes beyond this definition, but when I hear transactional, I always think money. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and it could be other ways of, of bartering or, or, you know, and I think it's when we lost that sense of what value means and everything started to be valued in the terms of monetary value, profit value, yeah. uh, and the bigger the population got, the more we seemed to move towards that. Uh, and so... You know, both of you have kind of alluded to this idea that we've lost something. When, if you looked back into the history of all time, um, when would you say that you feel there was a dramatic shift from a more interactive relationship with each other and the planet and the world around us to a more transactional type of approach and culture that we now seem to be in? Well, I would say that if 99.9% .9 of human, human history has lived in, uh, in hunter-gatherer civilizations, and I call them civilizations because they were truly civil societies, uh, very egalitarian and very much connected to the landscape around them, even if they were nomadic, they still had very strong relationships to, the, to their biological ranges. So I would say that the transition began in earnest probably sometime uh, in the middle of the Neolithic period, which is basically the period of time when agriculture was beginning to rise. And I would say that it really took off with the rise of the first highly complex societies. So we're talking societies that actually had, you know, classes of people that could have leisure and that, you know, managed the resources so you know like temple priests and that sort of deal because essentially it was at about those that time that we saw the first rudimentary monetary systems emerge so it's to say that that they were using some form of you know symbolic a symbolic piece 
to represent the thing of value, which was the resource coming from the land base that inevitably created the first sort of stratified economics. Uh, the Industrial Revolution, you know, reified this as a result of the Enlightenment philosophies. And, uh, you know, the Industrial Revolution pretty much turned it into the strongest vector for culture. And then from there, I would say that it really, really, really began to turn everything transactional maybe just less than 40 years ago with the rise of neoliberalism, which is the idea that a market can provide for human needs and necessities and that, that it's the market that determines justice and law and policy. And it's been a dangerous precedent because essentially what we've seen because of it is things like trickle-down economics, the rising uh, inequality that's been so problematic, and uh, just a great deal of the the you know uneven distribution that has been so present and it's by far probably one of the most dangerous philosophies we have because it's quite literally killing us and that's speaking from a public health perspective it has such an impact on health in so many different ways um, Nicholas Freudenberg wrote a book called Lethal But Legal where he actually discusses how industries have used this philosophy to leverage the sale of, of very deleterious products. In his case, he was taking on um, automobiles, cigarette manufacturers, big pharmaceuticals, and, and, and other industries that have to do with that sort of thing. So. Well, and, and, and your mention of the, the political aspect of things, and when you say like the last 40 years, and I was thinking just even a little bit more with regards to that, there seemed to be this period of time where people were more comfortable handing over power to the government and saying, our politicians will make the laws, our politicians you know, can decide. We, we vote for the politicians who we feel will represent us, but then we allow them to do their job. And um, I, I feel like there's this craving for interactivity that's innate in people, and that's why we see now so much more of like protests and petitions and all of that kind of thing, because people are coming back to realizing handing over to and then allowing somebody else to decide isn't necessarily the best way because it takes out any sort of input or dialogue or even understanding on, say, the politicians part of what the person they're passing laws about is going through in their life. And so I think people have that innate desire for interactivity that is starting to really swell up again and, and is wanting to be heard and is wanting to be re-engaged in, in, in some ways. Um, and, and, and Linda, when do you think, you know, if you were thinking back, when, what, what would you identify as kind of that shift of when we went from more interactive to more transactional-based society in the world? Yeah, I feel it was in the time frame, again, when we went from the hunter-gatherers into the agricultural kind of reality. Um, I feel that in the it might have started some then, but the age of enlightenment to me, which was really the age of endarkment, where science became more powerful and more important than the heart, than the spirit, than the connection with nature and these kinds of things, I feel this is where, uh, for me, the split came. 
between transactional and, and interactive. We lost that. And we gave our power away to these people who we thought knew more than the, than us. Oh, why? We, we'll leave it to the lawyers. We'll leave it to those that know. And that was when we really lost our way, too, and lost our power to speak up and say, hey, you know, wait a minute. Because the Industrial Revolution was actually the mining of our minds and spirits. Now, that to me is the deepest part of it, and it was facilitated through uh, the age of enlightenment. And Charles Eisenstein, are you, are you familiar with him? He's a, a, a wonderful young younger man, and he's uh, written many things about economics and the economy. And he has a couple of books that I really have enjoyed, and it's called Sacred Economics. And also the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible. And all these things involve what a transactional world doesn't have to me. Deep inner looking. Understanding about judgments and prejudices and where they came from. And how many of the thoughts we think are not our own. But from the program manipulated world. Which seeks to separate us and destroy this interactive, connected, integrated world that really is the truth. And that's the way they're able to carry on their transactional world is through the, the destruction of our mind and spirit, which they've done. And Charles Eisenstein is really great about barter and um, understanding that money is simply, you know, like the dollar is just paper with green things painted on it that we have given tremendous power to. So... There's something about energy to the exchange of energy and understanding about this interactive, integrated, connected world that has a heart, which, you know, the heart was online, as I always think about it. None of what is going down would be going down in the same way. We would not allow this kind of thing to be happening to us. Yeah, to add to, to, add to Linda's statement, because that's absolutely a brilliant thought frame, um, I would say that, yeah, the Enlightenment was definitely sort of the the hard marker in culture where, you know, we saw this sort of hyper-individualism on steroids emerge. And it was also a time when reductionism as a philosophy became exonerated. And what's interesting is that as we're moving forward and so much of this new awareness is emerging, permaculture and various other things, Science itself is beginning to shift into a new paradigm, and it is recognizing that reductionism can, is only useful in certain contexts. And increasingly, it's recognizing that there is a lot of relationship going on in the world and going on in the universe itself, and that it's relationship that helps to better explain how phenomenon operates. So, you know... It's a sea change, and it's a paradigm shift, and, and we're seeing it not just in science, but everywhere. So. Yes. And I think... It is. I, was, I was just going to say, and to me it's interesting, because I think today we would tend to think of a lot of that in terms of power and who controls the money and all of that as government, you know, as uh, politicians, corporations, and that kind of thing. But going back to, like, the Enlightenment, it's, it's as, it seems as initially we gave the power away to science, which well, then, I, would, I would say that it's a little more complex than that because, you know, 
what we did was give it away to a certain framework of science because science did exist before then. It just operated on very different principles. So what well, happened, not, not what, only that, really, they, yeah. they took over. I mean, science became the rationale, the reason, the way it was. There was no more interaction with the heart. That was yeah. cut off then. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely was. It, it was basically... It was exonerating the rational mind above all else. And yes, and that's when we lost that connection, when that interactive, integrated, alive understanding and connection with Earth was severed. Yes, absolutely. And it was because of that severance that reductionism was able to become so dominant as a philosophy. Yeah. Because it was now an understanding that that nature was a machine. It was inert. It was dead. It was you know. Right. It was just a, an assemblage of various parts. And what we're realizing is that increasingly that's not the case at all. It's it's very much an interactive and relationship oriented sort of thing. The more we look at things, the more we see relationship. We don't and, see, we don't see separation. So anyway, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, for me, for me, it always goes back to Egypt. Um, you know, for for the Egyptians, they saw the the mind and the heart as both sitting in the heart itself. Mm-hmm, so did. the heart was, you know, that seat of both intellect and emotion. And I feel like what you're talking about with like the Enlightenment is the split, where yeah. the intellect was taken out of the heart. Yes. Yeah. And that also meant when I was saying, you know, we, we that's where we started to really give the power away to science in a general statement, right. um, that it meant we lost the interactivity with our own inner voice, our own intuition, yeah. you know, our own personal gnosis, if you will, yeah. because everything had to be based on observation and experimentation and facts, you know, and all of that. And there is a place for science, of course, but I think that we've totally you know, gone far too much to the extreme the other way. And well, we need the interactivity with the self and the inner self just as much as we do with the outer self, the outer world. The heart is the main organ of perception and truth. And it connects up with the mind. Then the mind-body, uh, heart-soul connection works in the proper function. But what happened is the brain, the mind, got elevated into the kingly state as the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-everything. And without the heart, we only have a transactional reality is how I see it. And, and we, we don't have that interactive anymore. And Linda raises an interesting point because, you know, a lot of, a lot of contemporary neuroscience is showing that the rational process in the mind um, is only, the only way that, it, that a rational process can work within the mind is that there has to be an emotional framework for it. So you cannot cut off the organic uh, understanding because it is through passion and through a sense of deep love that rational, rational thought is able to emerge because essentially rational thought emerges when we recognize that there's, there's something at stake if we don't think rationally about it. So for instance, you know, we have, if we don't think rationally about a lot of the crises that we're facing, especially climate change and come up with, you know, really good policy to address these issues, 
you know, it's the difference between extinction or apotheosis for our species. So it's, it's really important to understand that rational thought processes absolutely have to be based in the heart because essentially it's the only way they work. And this is what evidence tells us. You know. Absolutely. When you look at the world today, you can see there is no heart out there. Yeah. It I is mean, a heartless place. Yes. It is heartless. And I just, that's my main little thing these days is about the heart because without it, the rational thinking mind, the, you know, scientific something, it's empty. If you balance it with the heart, like the natives, you know, they, they, went out into the woods. They heard the plants speaking to them. They understood what it was to do. There was love. There was connection. There was communication. And that's the truth of life. Yeah, absolutely. Life is relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. So as we move to a close of our conversation and not wanting to end on a hopeless note, And, you know, we have that saying that most people are familiar with, that if you want to change the world, you change yourself, or change begins with me, or however it gets said. So what would be something that you might suggest to people that they could start to do on a personal level, which will then expand out to affect the world around them, to move themselves from a more transactional mindset and conditioning because I think part of it is important people have to just recognize they've been conditioned a certain way to start then changing that within themselves um, what would you suggest as as a, a tip for them to start moving from a, tra- a transactional mindset and way of operating and seeing the world to a more or coming back to a more interactive perspective and approach to themselves and the world around them I would say what what Linda mentioned uh, prior to the conversation starting, uh, the thing about attention is just pay attention. And really what that is is that we, so many of us walk through our daily lives mindless of of the world around us. Uh, We're thinking about other things or we're, we're rehashing, you know, um, advertising jingles in our head. Like, I'm amazed that people can remember the McDonald's advertising jingle, but, you know, they can't tell me what their front porch looks like. So, really, it is being present and attention, bringing attention to the world around that surrounds you, the envelope that you live in, the thing that envelops you and supports you. So attention would be the first step. And then the second step after that is to engage uh, in a relationship to that world and to figure out, you know, who are the people in your community that are stakeholders that you you can work interactively with to build a groundswell. Um, you know, the world is certainly changing that direction. There's, there's, there's a great deal of hopeful signs of this. You have groups like Anonymous and, and Occupy Wall Street and, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter. All of these things that are addressing these relationships, these important things about paying attention to relationships and power dialogues. So I would say that's a great place to start is just start being attentive. And I think that brings up a really good point in that um, all of the things that you've just said really are about, like, if we think of Black Lives Matter, for example, they aren't just, you know, making sure that they write op-ed pieces that get published. They're going out in the world and showing up, you know, to protest at places, to to 
interrupt and disrupt you know, a political rally or something like that. And I think what you were just saying is it's important for people to realize just because you see the headlines in your Facebook feed doesn't mean that you are connected to, aware of what's going on in the world. It's that interactivity of getting out in the world and talking with people and uh, and, and not... I say talking loosely because sometimes what gets lost there is the willingness to go sit and just listen to what other people have to say about their experience without needing to somehow <laughs> um, share or comment on that. Um, but, but you know, I think that what you just said is so important and the things that you use to illustrate that really bring up the point. It's about getting out in that world and interacting and dialoguing with the people, the places, the things, the plants, et cetera, of that world, rather than thinking you know just because you've read the story on a blog or something like that. So, Linda, what, what would you suggest as a, a tip for people to move to back to a more interactive relationship with themselves and the world around them? So, uh, for me... Um, one of the things that I find is so important and that really we overlook, and I think it really does begin with ourselves. You want to make a change in the world. Michael Jackson said, you want to make a change in the world? Look at yourself in the mirror and start there kind of thing, you know? I think that mostly going out in the world is great, but if we go out into the world full of all of our false beliefs and all the patterns and all the bullshit or BS or whatever it is kind of thing and all our stories and all the false things that are within us, we're not really doing the job in a way that I feel uh, initiates the change. Because for me, interactive is from deep within. Transactional is superficial, shallow on the surface. So we have to look into our darkness. We have to see the darkness in the world. I kind of am one that gets tired of saying to people, oh, that's too dark. Well, oh, I can't possibly talk about that because that's not, oh, that's so negative. But the thing is, in order to be free, in order to be truly free, we must pass through the darkness and be burned and have in the alchemical experience of transformation and transmutation, that dross is burned away, and we step out into uh, the gold, which is the true self, which is without all those pattern-programmed crazy ways that we go about it. This is how we set other people free, because we've set ourselves free in the first place. So, in the transactional world all of that is let go of here just take a pill instead you'll be fine right so i think that's kind of how it how it how it starts and then we are out there in the real world facebook is never going to give us what we need it's a great little thing for sure a wonderful tool incredible but they kind of took away community which is interactive personal upfront and gave us networking which is transactional uh, lacking that personal thing. And the only way we're going to survive for me is to be within community locally. And that's interactive. I'm really glad you brought up the point about going into the shadow and the darkness, because I think that especially in a lot of new age spirituality circles, we see what, uh, what has been termed solar spirituality. It's, it's an almost obsessive focus on only the light and only the right, positive right. at the expense that people are going through processes of grief 
and loss and and are looking into the bullshit that is 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 swirling inside of their minds the darkness is is like the fire always burning at the edge of our consciousness inviting us because the darkness actually is rich and fertile and alive and it's where the soul hangs out calling to us so that we can be free and so the darkness, really, if we can think of it in these more positive, juicy, ripe, rich uh, words, it's the door to freedom. Yeah. And without the darkness, we have no contrast. So it is the light and the dark that gives depth and dimension to this reality. We cannot have only one or the other and have what we have now. Yeah. Absolutely, because otherwise everything remains superficial and, you know... And transactional. It's never about standing one or the other. It's about us standing together as equals in the truth of our common humanity. I mean, all humans need the same kind of thing, which is love and acceptance and care and compassion. These are the things that are interactive where transactional misses all those things. And that's a perfect place for us to finish, okay. <laughs> because that was that that was a uh, that that that's a perfect aspirational place for us to finish in terms of the things you just mentioned for us to remember and come back to, um, okay. you know. And so I certainly want to thank you for a very stimulating and interactive roundtable. You see what <laughs> I did there, um, and hopefully for those listening, it has simply triggered a thought process you know it's not about having the answers it's not about needing to see a result this is not transactional in that way it's designed to just engage the process and engage the dialogue to hopefully open it up to continue and be broader than what it might have been before so thank you to my guests to permaculturist and living well contributor here in on Revol- on revolution linda wiley Thank you, Hi-C. It was great fun. And to astrologer and contributor as well to the astrology update here on Revolution, Tino Kalenda. Thank you. It's been fun. (laughs) And for those listening, stay tuned. Coming up, we'll have my interview with two of the people that did the AIDS life cycle this year, both of them first timers, and we'll hear what it's like to experience something like that and what motivates somebody to take on that kind of challenge for the first time in their lives. If you'd like to get a reading during the last part of the show, then you can get into the queue now by either Skyping in from the show page or calling 646-716-5510. So stay tuned and we will be right back. I know.
You're listening to the Amethyst Oracle, Divination with a Queer Twist. Find out more at facebook.com slash the Amethyst Oracle. Enjoy the show. When is the last time you pushed yourself outside of your comfort zone and beyond your normal limits? Have you ever wanted to do something that was both incredibly challenging, deeply fulfilling, and supports a cause you believe in all at the same time? The AIDS Life Cycle is a fully supported 7-day, 545-mile bike ride from San Francisco to Los Angeles that raises money and awareness for the HIV and AIDS services of the Los Angeles LGBT Center and the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. In 2016, they set a fundraising record with over $16.5 million raised, and this year marked the 15th year for the AIDS life cycle and the 23rd year for the event overall. Every year, this landmark ride through beautiful California delivers a life-changing experience for thousands of participants from all backgrounds and fitness levels, united by a common desire to do something heroic. Almost 3,000 cyclists and volunteer roadies come together to do something incredible, something that will change lives, something that anyone, even you, can be part of. If you're inspired to be part of this experience in 2017, you can visit www.aidslifecycle.org. Today, we're going to speak with two people who decided to take on this challenge and embark on this adventure for the first time in 2016. So please join me in welcoming this month's guests, Sari Maline and Ryan Schabel. Welcome to the show, Ryan and Sari. Thank you so much for joining us here today. I'm extremely excited to hear some of the tales and tattles of what happened for you during the week of the AIDS life cycle. Thank you. Okay. So let us, I know it's very cliche, start at the beginning. And I want to ask, what is it that motivates someone to take on such a an undertaking uh, of a ride like this, where you're going to say, you know, I think I'm just going to go and sit on a little bicycle seat for seven days in all kinds of weather, going up and down hills <laughs> with thousands of people, and then at night I'm going to sleep on the ground and have to <laughs> trip over who knows what just to get to the bathroom in the middle of the night and then mm-hmm. hope I get up and can do it all again the next day. So what what was that initial motivation or, or catalyst that said, I'm going to do this? I had two, and, and they I think equally important. Um, 
The first was that uh, I had been introduced to the AIDS Life Cycle Ride by um, a woman who I was in a relationship with, and it was, you know, it was very, she had motivated me to go. In fact, at that moment, I had never been on a bicycle as an adult. Um, and so I was, I was motivated to do this really grand thing because of all these friends who had done it. Uh, and then I was in a relationship where, uh, this woman was like, she had done it before and she wanted me to do it. And I was like, that sounds like a great plan. Um, and so, uh, managed to get myself a bicycle and uh, got on my bike for the first time and, you know, started training. And that was really the beginning of my motivation, although that was three years ago. So it wasn't until this year that I actually managed to get in enough training and get on the ride. Um, But that was really my first introduction to AIDS Life Cycle was watching my other friends do it. Uh, And then, and then having somebody who I was very close with saying, I've done it. It's cool. It's awesome. You should do it too. Let's do it together. So that was my first piece of motivation um, originally. And then what prompted me to to really get in and fully commit this particular year um, was my best friend who had also done the ride in years past and is also HIV positive and he, for a number of reasons, could not go on the ride this year. Um, a lot of health issues had come up for him. And, um, and so my, my really deep-rooted motivation to do the ride this year was that he couldn't. And so I wanted to go in his, you know, in his place on his behalf. And so um, that's what really prompted me to get into it deeply this year and, and actually commit all the way to going. I had heard about the ride from one of my friends, um, and that's when I was introduced to it, but I hadn't really thought I would ever do it. And uh, I also briefly dated somebody who had done the ride, and he was just telling me about how he loves the ride, he had done it twice, and it was a great time for him. And at that time, I was swimming a lot, and I needed a new way to um, work out, basically. (laughs) Uh, So I wanted to get into cycling a bit. And the ride seemed interesting and fun. Um, And I'd never done a big fundraising event before. Although I didn't think about it very deeply at the time until I actually, like, signed myself up and looked at the routes and was just thinking to myself, like, oh, man, this is going to be a lot of miles. And I've never ridden more than, like, 25 miles on a bike before. <laughs> right? There's so. a total reality check that happens. <laughs> we are like, wait, how long is 45 miles? Because, you know, up up until the point, mm-hmm. I agree with Ryan, that up until the point that I had, um, that I gotten where I really had to start actually training, I had only ridden, I mean, 25 miles was probably the most that I had ridden. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's a reality check that happens there for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and then you discover yeah. hills. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> hills are not my friend. <laughs> and, and and since both of you knew people that had done it before, what were some of the stories and things that you had heard about the ride that gave you a glimpse or made you think this is what it might be like, or this is what I can anticipate experiencing. 
I've had a few friends tell me that it would be a little bit more, I don't know, out there than I was expecting it to be. Almost like it was just like going to be kind of a party-ish scene. Um, but that didn't really seem to be the case, at least not from my perspective. So it was just kind of funny. I feel like people kind of like hyped it up to be more like crazy fun rather than just like fun I would enjoy. <laughs> Only because they made it seem like like I had no idea what I was getting into, but I, I had a great time. So, yeah. So the if interesting thing sense. about that, and I'm fascinated by this, Ryan. The interesting thing about that is that I think you got a, uh, a gentleman's perspective of the ride. Um, because the majority of the people that I knew that had already done the ride were all women, mostly queer-identified LGBT community women, um, but mostly women. And so um, I, like the stories that I heard were about the great rain disaster of 2012 where, you know, it just poured rain and they ended up closing the route and some people got through and some didn't. Of course, you and I experienced that a little bit on day seven, but not to the magnitude that they did in 2012. Um, Mm. You know, I heard about the extraordinary sense of physical accomplishment women who were like I had never been on a bike before but I committed to this and this is what I was doing and then um, I also have a friend who is uh, for sport a triathlete and so for her it was competitive she got up early she was on the route first she tried to be the first one into camp Um, and I didn't hear a lot of stories of you know, uh, laid back, sort of partying, having fun, um, mm-hmm. other than rest up for. Like, that was the most <laughs> I heard. It was like, oh, wait until rest up for every day, you're going to love it. And that oh, was yeah. it. So it's interesting that you and I heard different um, sort of pre- previews of the ride leading up. Yeah. Most of the people I heard from were gay men. Um, and I think it really depends on what you really want to make of the trip too because I've talked with people who had a much different experience than I had on the trip which you know it was just very interesting I was mostly just concentrated on getting to the next point not that I was like overly tired because I trained fairly well um but I just like wanted to make sure I did the whole thing and did all the miles and got and I wanted to make sure I ate every night when we got into camp because <laughs> I was so hungry. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, and, and what is it that motivated both of you to decide to do it as a writer versus doing it as a roadie or crew? Oh, everybody says being a roadie is harder. Like that's all, I mean, that's everything that I heard, like being a roadie, cycling the route, like riding the route is hard. There's no doubt about that, but being a roadie is harder. Um, and I'm not, I'm not like a gear schlepper. I'm not like a, like, I mean, let's be frank. I know none of your uh, listeners can see me, but I'm an extraordinarily femme woman. So <laughs> the sort of task of hard labor didn't sound fun for me at all and still doesn't, and especially now that I've seen what roadies have to do. That is some hard work. It is yeah. hard. And I, and I don't want to. Um, and that was, I mean, that's really all it was. I wanted, I wanted to bike the ride. I didn't, I didn't want to 
um, you know, cut bananas in half every day or, you know, carry people's luggage around. I didn't want to do any of that. The important part for me was doing the ride as part of physical accomplishment in addition to the fundraising that uh, was obviously the most important part. Yeah, I feel the same way. Um, I really just wanted to do the ride. Even though it is really hard, it's still a lot of fun. And I didn't think I would enjoy myself as much to um, be a roadie. Um, But they do a lot of work, and it's pretty incredible um, just how well set up and organized it is because you really don't see them setting up and tearing down, but... There are four rest stops every day, and there's so much support that happens that it's just amazing. And I also saw it as a big accomplishment for myself to ride so many miles every day and to be a part of the fundraising. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just going to say, and some people will argue with me, but I think the roadies are really the heroes of the ride. Oh, I totally agree. Because of, totally of agree. what they do. You know, speaking of that, can you talk about the the discovery of the logistics of how they do this? Because it's like a little movable city <laughs> that is mm-hmm. set up and taken down and moved every day for a week uh, of time. So can you just talk about what it's like to suddenly be in that and really see the reality of what that is and what that means? So when I the first day on the ride, I was actually a little nervous to like, hand over my bag because I'd been warmed like they get really annoyed at you if you forget something in your bag and you have to ask them to get it (laughs) which is totally fair because I have a bunch of bags to deal with but I was really nervous also because I'm like I'm giving up this bag and I'm trusting them with like all the things I need for these seven days I was like okay here you go but um it was very amazing like there are four stops every day on the ride um so not only do they like serve you breakfast in the morning and take your tent and your bag every morning, um, there are four stops between the beginning and the end that will have porta potties, water for your water bottles, snacks, a medical tent with like sunscreen and any like ibuprofen, and um, also like a bike repair people that'll fix your bike. Uh, and on top of that, people that are driving around the route ready to pick people up if they can't, like, make it to the next stop for whatever reason. Um, and that was, like, really cool to see. It, they make it so easy, in a way, for us to finish the ride every day. I agree. I mean, the, the, whole, the whole thing is, it's a well-oiled machine slash traveling city. You know I mean? I see you said it perfectly when you're like, it's, it's really a, a town that just moves. Um, you know, I mean, I, I live nearby places that have a population of fewer than 3000 and, you know, here we are 3000 people just making it around um, from San Francisco to Los Angeles. The, the thing that was the most sort of uh, memorable moment for me in relationship to this movable town or movable city um, was that I was obviously very nervous going on the ride the first day. Uh, I did not have a tent mate. I did not sign up to ride with a team. I had a number of friends who were participants on the ride, but nobody that I had, you know, had, I, I showed up 
alone, you know, and I was tenting alone and I was riding alone. And, and we can talk more about that later because that was my my primary experience was just being alone. But um, after we got done with day one and I, you know, I got my tent set up and I slept moderately successfully, woke up the next morning, <laughs> you know, put all of my things away and went to go take them to the to the gear truck. I was like, OK, I know how this works now and I know where my tent goes in the grid I know how far it is from the trucks. I know how far I am from the food. And then I was like, oh, shit, it's all going to be different mm-hmm. at the end of the day today. Like, so I had, to, <laughs> I had to relearn every day where I was going to live, where I was going to eat, where I was going to use the shower. And it was like moving into a new apartment every day for seven days. You know, you have to sort of reacclimate. And so that part of it was less challenging as the week went on, but I, you know, I'd say day one, two, and three, it was a little nerve wracking until you kind of get your groove. But Mm -hmm. there was, there was definitely acclimation that needed to happen um, in relationship to everything moving constantly. Yeah. The first night I actually distinctly remember like, okay, this is where, oh, that's where the showers are. And then we have to walk around this way and we get to our tents and that's where the trucks are to hand off our bags. And then, that night I was like, oh, yeah, like, I don't need to be remembering this. <laughs> right, right, because it's just going like, to change. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was in that moment, though, that I had this I had this moment of clarity about what it must be like to be a rock star. And I was like, for a minute, I was like, maybe I'm just a rock star this week. <laughs> <laughs> that was like the one thing that made me like believe in life. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, except for you don't have to sleep on the ground every night. Right. <laughs> Near right. rock star. Right. Um, though you probably don't know who you're sleeping with every night. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and in addition to that, I also want to just you know give a shout out to the fact that they have such full service medical and also mm-hmm. bike repair, right on site the whole time. <laughs> yeah, full service medical and bike repair at every stop. But then when you get into camp, not only full service medical, but also sports therapists, mm-hmm. massage therapists, chiropractors. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a huge uh, population, if you will, of people who are volunteering their time to help you remain healthy. And, you know, it's interesting because the physical challenges that I assumed that I would have on the ride were not the ones that I actually did have. Um, And so I was met by day three with a whole new set of physical problems that I was like, oh, I had no idea that this would happen to me or that would happen to me. And not knowing, because I'd never experienced it before, not knowing how to handle that. You know, you walk into the medical tent, you put your name on the list and 15 minutes later they call your name and you're talking to either a doctor or a, you know, or a massage therapist or a chiropractor and they have the information to help you get better. Mm-hmm. And that was really incredible. So that's probably the, one of the greatest sort of miracles of the ride to me is that they have people who volunteer their time to make sure that we stay healthy and finish. Now we've done the training and talked about what we anticipated. And then comes day zero. Give us give us a little bit of a taste of 
what goes through your mind, what goes through your body, what you feel emotionally when you get to the cow palace, the place where everybody gathers for the opening ceremony and then rides out of, and then what it's like to finally be on the road for the first time in the ride itself, not on a training ride, but everything you've been working towards is now becoming reality. You know, can you just talk a little bit about what that experience is like on that first day? Day zero, the most exciting thing I did was signed up for 2017. Um, but I had already, I had done a lot of research. I, I knew what to expect. I knew what day zero was going to look like. I talked to people on my training rides. Um, it was It was day one when you go in and everybody's there and it's opening ceremonies and, you know, and they have the, um, the riderless bicycle. Um, and that is, that's powerful. Um, in fact, the, the people that I was with on day one that I had, that I had found that I knew they took me and they put me up against, uh, the, the rope. They were like, you are going to want to be here you are going to want to be close to this and see it. Um, and we want you to be close. So we will step back several people deep so that those of you who have never done this before can experience this. And that was really wonderful. Mm-hmm. And then you go and you get on your bike and then you ride out and there's people and they're cheering for you and you get, you know, you get like a mile or two out and then like, holy shit, what have I just signed up for kicks in. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, oh, I guess I guess I'm really doing this. Like this is this is real. Okay, and 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 I just settled in. You know, I just sort of took a deep breath and tried to find the most comfortable thing about riding my bike, and figured I was just going to do this exactly this for seven days. It was in those first few miles that I really had to grapple with the awareness of what I had committed to and. And then also uh, really get into my soul about why I had made this decision and what it was that I actually had create. You know, what change am I creating? You know, I raised seven thousand dollars, and you know, what was that seven thousand dollars going to do? And who was it going to help? And who was it going to affect? And so that was my my day one was really spent. Those first few miles were really spent making peace with the fact that I had done this absolutely insane thing. And then I got a flat tire and then I changed everything. (laughs) (laughs) And day one. That was the beginning (laughs) for me. Uh, That's rough. So I kind of have a story that goes along with my day zero. So on day zero, you are basically just going to Cow Palace and dropping off your bike and going through all of the, like, information stuff and introduction stuff. Um, So I rode with a team, and the plan was to meet up there around, I think it was 9 or 10 in the morning um, on Saturday. So I had a friend drive me up with my bike, with my suitcase, because I was staying in the city overnight for the following day, for day one. And um, so I go up to the city, drop off my bike, meet up with my teammates, and then I realized, oh, shit, I didn't pack my cycling shoes with, oh, no. my, <laughs> yeah, with my clips, like, on my cycling shoes. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I live in the South Bay. It's like an hour drive-ish. And it's not that bad, but I didn't 
you know, I had driven up here and made plans to stay over. So I call my friend. He says he can't find them, and I'm freaking out. So I get a ride from my teammate back down to the South Bay, trying to look for these shoes, and I can't find them. So I... <laughs> I go to REI and buy brand new shoes and clips and then catch Caltrain back up to the city and take a lift to my friend's house. And by the time I get there, it's like time to go to bed. It, it still worked out, but it was so that was probably the most stressful part of the ride. But uh, day one was a lot of fun for me. Um, you know, the the what is it called the riderless bicycles is that what it's called mm-hmm. um yeah that was pretty powerful actually it's like supposed to represent um people who have uh passed away from hiv or aids then the ride out was definitely the cool part like i knew people would be cheering us on you know but it just i didn't really know what it would have felt like and it was really cool riding past everybody cheering us on and riding with everybody too and um and then you get a few miles out and we still get like a full lane dedicated to us at least um for the first i don't know 10 miles or something um and it was it was a lot of fun i will remember day one for a long time Mm -hmm. And, and so and both of you have mentioned now and you you both did this very differently so i'm i'm wondering how you came to either ride with a team or to embark upon this solo, basically. Um, and if you would decide to do it differently or if you are now even more convinced that doing it that way is really how you would like to experience the ride. Um, so I decided to ride with the team. When I had signed up, I, I just signed up alone and figured I could rely on my friends, Tina, who had done it in the past to just let me know what to expect and how to prepare. Um, And I did some training rides in the South Bay with Awesome Ahead. Uh, But I had gone to a a barbecue in the South Bay with uh, just a social barbecue with a bunch of uh, gay guys from the, around the area, and um, I had told them that I had signed up, and they said they had a team, and I said, okay, I'll join you guys, and it's been a good experience. I've met met some really nice people from my team. Um, however, I'm not sure if I'll sign up again with the team, because coordination with the team could be difficult. I didn't really get to do a lot of activities that I wanted to do with my team. Um, So it kind of just made it another thing to pay attention to. Um, And I think I'll try to either go it alone or, you know, potentially do it with another team. I'm not sure. So I had exactly the opposite experience. Um, I didn't ride with a team. I didn't, um, there was, so I live in the far north end of the North Bay. I live in Sonoma County, which is uh, a good hour north of the Golden Gate Bridge. And there was not a team in place up here that I uh, felt aligned with. There was only one team that I knew of, and it was um, 
based out of, it was a group of people that all attended the same uh, non-denominational church group. And that didn't really resonate with me, although I loved those people. I didn't necessarily want to be part of that team. So I trained with a group of writers who all were teamless, plus this small team from the church. And um, so when I got on the ride, I didn't, I had some camaraderie with people that I had trained with, but it was, you know, there's 3,000 people there. You don't, there were people that I knew were on the ride that I never saw. In the entire seven days, I did not see them once. Friends of mine who were on the ride and we did not see each other. Um, so in that aspect, I think that the team, uh, the, the, the team aspect would be nice because at least you know that, you know, at a certain time you can go here and you can be with your people. Um, but I, my experience as a writer without a team was incredibly lonely. Um, and that was a very difficult thing for me. Um, I'm a highly social person. I thought, you know, I, I thought I would go on the ride and I would, um, make 20 new best friends, if not 40 or a hundred. And that's sort of the way that I operate. You know, I'm, I'm, I feel very comfortable going places alone because I know that when I leave, I will have met new people. And that experience didn't happen for me on the ride. And when I was done and I got home and was feeling these, you know, big pains of, of loneliness, of, of, of being by myself for so long, um, the, the first thing that I did was reached out to a, a Facebook group um, that is designed for specifically women who, who do AIDS life cycle. And I expressed these feelings, you know, like I got home and I still feel very lonely. I feel like the whole experience was lonely and hard. And the biggest piece of feedback that I got was based on your experience, we think you should be on a team next year. Um, so next year I'm going to join a team and I'm going to be on a team and I'm going to see how that works because I, my experience not being on a team didn't work for me. So the, the only other option is to be on, <laughs> is to be on a team. Um, so I'm going to give that a try and see how it goes. It's interesting that you, brought up loneliness um, on the ride because uh, all the other members of my team are much faster than me. <laughs> uh-huh. No, they all were fast. Everybody in the whole ride was faster than me. I got you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I fortunately had my tent mate who um, I had trained with on the uh, weekend training rides on Sunday mornings. Um, uh, we ride at very similar paces. Um, so we had started off the first two and a half days riding mostly close to each other and oftentimes on the other days of the week. Um, so that was really nice to have, but it was also nice to, it was really nice to have that comfort zone kind of like a, a place to like have a guy to chat with the entire way for, for the first two days. But then also, um, I knew my teammates at the rest stops, and um, I would eventually come to like just chat with random people. And then I actually ended up meeting um, a guy from another team who was at a very similar pace as I was riding on day four, five, and six, I think it was. Um, and I have considered joining that team because it's a much bigger group 
and it seems like it wouldn't be, you know, as lonely in a way. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I'm part of this team, but I am always, like, way behind them, so that kind of defeats the purpose if I'm never seeing them. So if if somebody was thinking about doing the ride, how would you suggest they go about considering whether to join a, a team as part of the experience or to maybe go it alone and do it solo? I would say make sure you're part of training rides. If you want to go solo, make sure you're part of training rides um, and you'll know people that are in a similar pacing as you. Or if you're going to join a team, try to ride with some of those members um, and see if you're at the same pace as well. Uh, you know, I have to say that I don't know that I have any advice. I think for each person, it's in, it's in, it's different. Um, I have friends who have said I've ridden on a team and I've decided it's not for me. And I've had friends who said, you know, I, I don't ever want to be on a team ever. Um, I think everybody just has their own, you know, I, I once say once you can't only do AIDS life cycle once you, you do it once to find out what it's like and then you do it again so that you can really make the most of the experience. You kind of learn what to do the first time. So the second time it's, it's better slash easier. Um, but I thought that was really interesting, you know, to hear somebody say you can't do, you can't do it once and decide that it was bad, you know, and you never want to do it again. You have to do it twice. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, to me, it's interesting that um, like for you, Sari, that, your your normal experience in life is that you can go into any place alone and walk out with new friends. And yet that didn't seem to happen in this particular situation where you might mm-hmm. think it would because you're like, well, everybody's there for a common cause and, you know, all of those kind of things. What kind of uh, makeup of the crowd did you find and were there any surprises for either of you in terms of, uh, who you discovered as doing the ride and that kind of thing versus what you thought the crowd would kind of be like that was was part of this whole endeavor? No, I thought the crowd was fairly, um, it's, it's what I expected. Um, I knew that there would be a, the majority of the people on the ride would be a gentleman who identified as gay. Uh, and that was the case there were a lot of um there were a lot of straight people on the ride that I met um you know I met husbands and wives who were doing the ride together um there were a lot of women whether they were queer or straight or you know however they identified I I didn't always know I also I consider myself to be much more of an introvert and I found myself gaining confidence as like as the days went on to bring up conversations. Um, uh, you know, I, I very often hear from people, they, they say the experience is like for a week's time living in a love bubble and that there's kind of this idealized version of community that this kind of represents. You know, A, I, I, I would wonder if you feel you experienced that as well. Um, but B, I would also be curious even in the brief interactions you might have had with people, if you discovered some interesting stories and characters and reasons why people were doing the ride that you came across? You know, even though I am comfortable with my sexuality, I mean, I'm gay, I don't, you know, it's not like me to 
flirt that often, but at the end of the ride, I felt like very comfortable with it in a new way. I felt, um, which was really nice for me. Um, it's kind of hard to explain and very personal, uh, but maybe that was part of the love bubble that I was feeling. I'm not sure. And do you feel you've brought that back in your everyday life now, or do you feel that was something that got stimulated in you because of the environment, but then it kind of wore off when you had to come out of that environment? It definitely at least stuck with me for a while. If not, um, it's still, you know, present within me um, because of the ride, just because it made it feel, I don't know, like much more comfortable with flirting with somebody I think is cute or whatever. Um, I'm not sure. Um, we'll see. I don't know. We'll see how this next year goes between this ride and next ride, I guess. <laughs> well, and to me, I think that the love bubble was more defined as a generalized sense of uh, community that, we and I and I say we referring to people in the LGBTQ community. We don't necessarily experience on a regular basis. You know, I, we don't walk around feeling very comfortable about everything all the time, um, like you do in on the ride. Um, you know, we we are afraid sometimes to hold our partner or our lover or our girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse's hand in the grocery store. You know, we're, we're cautious of displaying public affection. Um, Mm -hmm. This is sort of a a generalized thing that we've all experienced, you know, at least once in our lives being uncertain of, you know, the risk of, of homophobia, um, you know, being around. And so the love bubble sort of negates that, um, it, it, it makes it so that you are in a safe place, mm-hmm. but also, you know, people would put their entire bags outside their tent all night long, you know, and if, <laughs> if you were a really terrible, horrible person, you could go, you know, pilfering through everybody's bag at night. But, um, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a community of, of trust, of respect, of care, um, that that just exists by default because we are sort of all in this together. Um, it's you know I can by no means speak to what it must have been like on nine eleven, but it's almost like we all got together and we're like we can all do this together. You know we are mm-hmm. all united for this one cause to make sure that we all make it to the end of this week and. And that sense of support of just strangers was, that part was really wonderful. It, it mm-hmm. was, I mean, that was sort of my definition of the love bubble. Yeah, I would say there's no doubt that it definitely is an environment that makes you feel comfortable being who you are and accepting of that, which is great. Can you remember where that kind of tipping point was when you went from still consciously thinking about the fact of I'm on this ride and I'm in this camp and that kind of thing to this is my normal everyday world and existence and I don't even think about that versus whatever's happening outside would be more of the jarring aspect of things. Mm -hmm. When I woke up on day 
six, I really didn't want to get on my bike at all. So, but once I actually got on my bike, it was easy. It was strange. Um, from that, like day six and day seven were pretty easy, um, surprisingly. Um, and it was, you know, it, it was an interesting experience because I think I was just so mentally and physically exhausted that day five was like, the day to go to bed early and I'm glad that I did. <laughs> you know, there there were definitely days that you hit the wall and you're grumpy. Um I cried several times on the ride, during the ride. Climbing, <laughs> I, going I down will admit I did cry a little bit on day five. Yeah. There's I mean uh, it it is it's hard and it's emotional and I am a very stoic person and I found myself getting into lunch stops and just rolling in and putting my foot on the ground and crying. Mm. Um, and it, I mean, it's, it's a, it's physically challenging. There's no doubt about that. It is mentally challenging in relationship to the physical aspect. But I think the part that I wasn't expecting was the emotional uh, experience that I that I had. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah. Well, and I, and it makes me think there's there's a few stories that like just have been burned into my head that I hear you know from Jeff and other people that we know that that do the ride and and that kind of thing. Um, and and I'm I'm just going to share a couple of them here, but I then want to hear perhaps some of the most more you know profound. Um, realizations, experiences, stories, uh, situations that you might have come across during the ride, if if any. Um, you know, but I, a couple of years ago, there was a couple in their, like, 50s or something that were doing the ride, a, a man and a woman, and they had gotten special permission to do it. They they It was only a week before the ride that they started to, that they decided to do it and ask if they could because their... Um, son had just died and they wanted to do it in his memory Mm. (laughs) yeah see um you know (laughs) and and then you hear the the places where you stop you know or go through like the woman who you go through every year and she's it's out in the middle of nowhere and yet she's standing Mm -hmm. there by the side of the road and she bakes cookies and hands them out to everybody riding by every year she has been doing this for i don't know like 15 (laughs) years or something Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. And I saw her. Oh, you did. <laughs> um, and then there's there's the town you go through. Um, I forget the name of it. It's a small town, but they have Badly. they have all of the kids, the school kids, mm-hmm. come out and they set up the the rest mm-hmm. stop and they have like lunch, and, you know, stuff. And it started out very simply, apparently, because they wanted the school kids to come out and like cheer the riders on when they came through. And then they started doing this, and and it became such a big deal that now they have this whole barbecue where they sell hamburgers and hot dogs and stuff, and they might sell them for $5, but people apparently will come through and they will just hand over $1,000 because it's become the only fundraising that the school has to do every year. Um, And they have gone... When Jeff did it most recently... um, they just from that rest stop, they had raised like forty five thousand dollars from people just the handing over money. Year, yeah, the sign this year that they had hanging on the fence said that the year prior they had raised it was it was somewhere between forty and forty five thousand dollars 
just on that one restaurant. So they they do a hundred dollar hamburger club. Oh, that's what where it is, yeah. you get this you get the same exact hamburger as everybody else, but you get it in an air conditioned room. Which trust me, that day was important. Yeah. Um, you know, and they and they sell like the kids make bracelets and they make buttons and you know all these things and and they don't sell them for a price. They just say you may have one, and we ask that you make a donation and just put the cash in the jar. Yeah, but yeah, and I think it really speaks to how the community, in terms of where you go through, has also become part of the ride and has been touched by the ride, uh, and how they really show up and come out to to support the ride as well, rather than just hearing a news story that some people on a bike rode through kind of thing. It, it becomes an event in a lot of these places. Uh, the first thing is just that it's very moving to see, like, every day, all seven days, even if you're, like, in the middle of nowhere, you will come across random people just on the side of the road cheering us on. And it's very fun to see and very... I don't know. Keeps you motivated. Yeah, there was um, one lady in her bathrobe, like sitting on a lawn chair yard in a bathrobe, but she mm-hmm. was there and waving, and it was great. She's in a bathrobe. It was so important for her to be out there to cheer. She couldn't get dressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that just <laughs> fascinating. Yeah, and and um, Quadbuster is an infamous hill that like has this like increasing ascent or degree um and there are a lot of people including cyclists who once they get to the top they like pull over and cheer everybody else on behind them Uh um, because it is a really big hill and it's pretty tough (laughs) but i remember i think i remember this for a long time there's one guy who was you know just barely behind me and I had gotten off my bike to start cheering other people on and he once he got to the top he like almost immediately just broke down in tears and it was very moving to see um, that Um, (laughs) so this um, couple a married couple used to do the ride like I don't know for years and um, one, one day, Edna, just, I don't know what day it was on, but she had collapsed and had died in her husband's arms, basically, um, just right in front of him without real a real explanation other than, like, a cardiac event. Um, I mean, she had been healthy enough to ride many years before, but... Um, not, I don't know, something had happened. And I guess the husband, and I feel really bad for not knowing his name, um, had done the ride the the next year um, on a tandem bicycle with Edna's ashes on the rear seat. And that Mm. story, like, makes me tear up every time. It's so, I don't know. Very moving. I can't imagine. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, so Team Edna was put together, of course, in Edna's honor. 
Um, and they did a great job. I mean, their fundraising was incredible. They did an excellent job fundraising. There were a lot of people that joined the team because of, uh, because of Edna and because of her and her husband's longstanding history as a cyclist for ALC. Um, the story that probably touched me the most um, was similar, but without the unfortunate ending, um, a woman by the name of, of, her name is Teresa, but everybody calls her Tito. Um, she had, uh, she had done the ride in prior years and had convinced her best friend to do the ride with her this year. Uh, and her friend's name is, is Aubrey. And Aubrey had not ridden a bike, uh, in her adult life, didn't really know anything about this, but was, was all just all in, you know, absolutely. I'm going to do this ride. And they were training, um, and they were training in the East Bay early in the year. Um, I want to say January or February. And they, the two of them, plus a number of other people on this same training ride, um, were doing a descent and, and Aubrey, nobody really, really knows what happened. Um, Aubrey was on the ground uh, and people came up on her and found her on the ground and uh, they, you know, the ambulance came of course and off she went. She was in a coma for a very long period of time. Um, she has a tremendous amount of rehab to go through still. In fact, she's, she's been moved from the Bay Area to Florida because um, her insurance plan doesn't cover a lot of her uh, recuperation, her physical therapy, everything. And it's less expensive in Florida. So she had to go there. Um, but Tia put together this, you know, sort of team OBS, you know, made jerseys to help, you know, support her, her, uh, her, you know, her medical costs and all of that. But in the process, Tito didn't get a chance to train for the ride because she had spent the majority of her time in the hospital next to Aubrey and come quad buster. Um, she was really struggling getting up that hill. And there is, there is a, 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 a moment in several of the videos that have come out from this year where Tito's really having a tough time getting up the hill and some other cyclists who were not on their bikes at the time came up behind her and just pushed and pushed and pushed her up that hill so that she mm -hmm. could get to the top because she had spent so much of her training hours by her best friend's side, helping her heal. So it's just the entire amount of support around people who are committed to showing up for the ride, even though something has gotten in their way. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's just, it's tremendous. It's tremendous. The amount of support. Which, which, uh, from what you just said, uh, too, could also just include the whole group of positive peddlers, that people with HIV who are willing to go out and do this ride rather than say, oh, I can't do it because of my illness, right. you know, versus they right. say, nope, I'm going to get out there and do it. And it's because they there is all of that support. And I think all of this illustrates kind of where that love bubble uh, idea comes from is just Excellent. experiencing and even even if you don't experience it personally but just seeing people offering that kind of support and and love and connection and everything so 
You come through all of these experiences, and then comes day seven. <laughs> now, I know I, I'm speaking more generally here. I realize for you this year there were some challenges on day seven that perhaps, mm-hmm. you know, certainly characterized part of the day. Um, but mm-hmm. from embarking on day one to now coming, well, day seven is kind of interesting, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's 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 the day where you get to have the great experience of riding on the freeway of L.A. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no lanes yeah. blocked off for you, mind you, just you and everybody else on the freeway. But mm-hmm. then you then there's the closing ceremonies and everything. So now that you've come to the end or are nearing the end of this uh, adventure, what was what was day seven like? Both I realize from some of the challenges, but then also when you are in the closing ceremonies, realizing it's done. Um, so the beginning of the day, I remember. <laughs> A lot of people, including my tent mate, saying like, oh, I don't need my arm warmers or anything. Mm-hmm. And me being like my first year rider, I'm like, yeah, I haven't needed this like wind jacket that much. And I always bring it with me, so I'm just going to bring it anyways. And it's supposed to be like pretty good weather all the way into L.A. And about like, I don't know, a half hour or so, maybe an hour into it. It starts pouring rain. Once the rain had uh, subsided and we were about into Malibu, I think, it cleared up pretty quickly. Once we got towards the end, there's like one last hill that's pretty rough. Um, But just knowing that it's the last one you have to do made made it manageable. It's just like just this one last big hill. I've done a bunch already. I can do this one too. Um, And I ended up coordinating with my teammates so we could do the last like 10 miles together and ride in. It was a a nice time because that was also the longest period of time that I rode with all my teammates because they were all much faster than me for most of the ride. Um, And riding in was fun too. It was kind of a similar feeling of the ride out when everybody's cheering you on. Um, There are are people there cheering you at the finish line. It was fun. I enjoyed it. And it dropped us off in like West Hollywood and Pride was the next day. So that was cool. I think day seven was definitely the the most challenging because as miserable as that rain was, nobody really wanted to get on the bus because if you get on the bus, you don't get to cross the finish line. And and didn't we do this so that we can have our picture taken across the finish line? <laughs> Everybody knew they just had to up and just keep going. And it was hard. I came around the corner just shy of the finish line and there's my best friend who I did this ride for. And he jumped hmm. into the street and waved his arms, and he, you know, was screaming, yay, yay, Sarah, you did it, you did it, I'm so proud of you, I'm so proud of you. So being able to to have that experience was, was huge. I mean, I just I started crying immediately um, when I saw him, and then um, 
finished and got done and, you, you know, gave them my bike because, you know, you put, they put your bike on a big truck and they ship it back up. And, and there's, there's this sense of, um, when you finish, there's, there's a sense of accomplishment, but also crap, what do I do now? You know, I've just done this huge thing to benefit the HIV and AIDS community in California. I've done this huge thing for my physical and emotional and mental body. I've done this huge thing for my best friend who couldn't do it himself. Um, I'm a mother. I've just done this huge thing to, to show my daughters that you can do hard things. Even at my age, I'm 42. And I didn't know what to do. You know, I got done and I was like, well, there was this sense of like, now what? And I don't know what to do next. Um, and so we did what every good person would do after they'd ridden 545 miles. And we went and had a gigantic steak dinner. <laughs> it was the greatest thing ever. It was the greatest meal I've ever had. But it, it's it's a, it, there's reentry. You know, there's there's reentry when you get done with the ride. There's there's no there are no roadies telling you which way to turn. There's nobody telling you it's this way to the food or it's that way to the bathroom or it's this way. You know, there's reentry into the real world, and it's and it takes some adjustment for sure. Yeah, I experienced that too. Um, at the end of the ride, it was like, wow, I did it, and it's I'm so happy that I I finished. And I did all the miles, and um, and then it was like, okay, now where do I go? Like, even after, you know, at bike parking, or, you know, you don't have to park your bike. You could walk it to wherever it goes, or walk it to the, you know, to get it shipped back to San Francisco, or whatever. And it's all up to you now, and it's just a very sudden, like, Everything has been structured for you for the past seven days, and now it's not. <laughs> but I remember, like, being so glad I had, like, choices for food and being able to use a real sink because you never use, a, like, running water on the entire ride. You're using hand sanitizer and, uh, like, uh, sanitizing wipes. Um and yeah, there definitely is a reentry there. I remember being very disappointed, not disappointed, but like sad it was over when I was at work that following Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was also like, but at the same time, but I I'm glad I don't have to ride my bike today. <laughs> <laughs> and then you wake up the next day to the news about Orlando. And I'm curious if that affected the reentry, and if it was it felt more affecting because you were kind of in this already raw state uh, after that week. To me, it did. Um, you know, to to get home from the ride and have this. The one thing that was good, um, not that anything about Orlando is good at all, but the one thing that was good was that we had Saturday to celebrate. And Sunday morning, we woke up to tragedy. There's no words to describe having, from my perspective, um, being 
being a person in the LGBT community, identifying as lesbian, but certainly I'm not a person of color. I'm Caucasian. Um, I'm not, I'm not male. I'm not, I, I, you know, I'm not a gay male. Um, to know that I have done all this work all week for people who are more easily afflicted um, or more easily susceptible to HIV and AIDS. And then to find out that all the work that I had done all week long to keep more men from dying was moot. And at least it felt moot to me. You know, it, it would be incredibly selfish to say that, oh, Orlando happened and it stole our thunder. Because that's, that's not at all what happened. Um, you know, tragedy struck and we all shifted our focus. Um, you know, just like we do, <laughs> frankly, every week when something big and noteworthy happens either in our community or to our community or, you know, in the, in the broader spectrum to people of color or, you know, any marginalized community, um, there's always going to be something important and urgent for us to place our focus on. And for those seven days, our focus was the ride. And then when we got home, it was time for us to focus on Orlando. It, it was an easy shift for me because I, 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 I do everything that I can to be in constant support of my community. The whole reason why I did this was to support my community. And so I just continued doing what I had done for the prior seven days. So you both indicated that despite it all, you're signed up to do it again next mm-hmm. year. Are you <laughs> anxious, excited, doubting, second doubt, uh, second thoughts? Um, you know, at, at this point, how are you feeling about doing that? I <laughs> I didn't sign up immediately. I was thinking like, ah, oh, this is a lot of work. Not sure if I really want to do it with the same team. Is the fundraising going to be more difficult because it's not my first year? Um, not that it was too difficult for me this this year, uh, this past year. Um, and, but at, at the last minute after the finish line, I'm like, okay, I'll just sign up, and you know, if I don't do it, that's fine. I haven't fully committed, but I have a feeling I'm going to try to do it again next year. <laughs> I'm signed up for next year. Uh, I signed up before I had even left on day one. Um, I had already signed up to go this, you know, next year or this coming year. Um, and I have to be very honest, when I crossed the finish line for probably the first 48 hours after being done with the ride, I was like, there is no way I'm doing that again. There is no way I'm doing that again. <laughs> um, but as I have had some sort of decompression and I've sort of debriefed the entire event, I'm going next year. So, in fact, I've already started fundraising <laughs> for next year. So, um, oh, as much as it was hot and I was like, screw this, I'm never doing it again, I, I, I took a couple deep breaths and went, no, what the work, the work that it takes to participate in that for seven days, it pales in comparison to what it, I, what it must be like to live with HIV or AIDS. And 
if me doing that for seven days helps, then it, then it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. And I think that's the, the perfect ending point, especially for anybody who might have been considering doing the ride. That would be, I think, the, the, the linchpin thought for them to have about deciding whether to do it or not. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So I want to extend a thousand gratitudes to both of you for being willing to take some time and talk about your experiences. And hopefully you continue to look back on that week of riding your bike <laughs> um, mm-hmm. with fondness <laughs> and not with you know phantom pain in the butt area. Uh, um, so, so thank you for having us on and we will look forward to cheering you on next year mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well that was convincing Sarah. thank you thanks for having me on the show it's a lot of fun absolutely I agree with that Listening to the Amethyst Oracle Divination with a Queer Twist. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please join us next time for Convergence with John Carousella, Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Mm-hmm.